because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know that my God, he, he knows the future. That's a good word. The good word of a promise keeper who is our God and our Father. Because he lives. Amen. Amen. I'm going to covet your prayers this morning as I preach. I shared with the first gathering that this is a, has been a little bit of a rough day for me. Uh, it's been seven years since my father passed. A um, couple days ago was his birthday. Um, and so it's a little bittersweet, and it's, it's hit me a little bit harder than I expected. Um, so... I just, I need your prayers this morning, because this, this is as much for me this morning as it is for you, amen, amen, why don't you stand with me and open your Bibles to Matthew, the sixth chapter, beginning at verse nine, Matthew, the sixth chapter, beginning at verse nine, reading down until Verse 13, if you're there, say amen. 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 Let me get us started, and then uh, you guys can jump on in, and we'll uh, read together. Verse 9, therefore, you should pray like this, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Keep reading. Amen. The title of our text this morning is simply, Who's Your Daddy? (laughs) Who's Your Daddy? Let us pray. Father, it's good that we can come to you and address you by that name, by the name of Father. Many of us, Lord, today are struggling because we have either lost a father or our father was never in our lives. And then for others, it is a celebration because they've experienced the beauty and joy of what a good father should be like. And no matter where we fall on that pendulum, God, we pray that you would meet us where we are so that we might have a clear understanding of what you are as our father, who you are as our father, that no matter where we've been or what we've experienced from an earthly father perspective, we have a heavenly father who loves us and cares for us, and is there for us, and concerned about our lives. And so, Father, we show our up today and lift our voice to say thank you for being there. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for leaving us your word to give us a clear picture of who you are. And so, God, we just pray this day that we would be encouraged, that we'd be challenged by your word, because we know that it's profitable for all things, for our benefit and for our good. This we pray in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever met someone or seen somebody from a distance that everybody seems to like and for some reason you don't like them? And when people talk about this person, they always have the nicest things to say about how caring this person is and how, you know, how kind they are and how comforting and giving they are. But for some reason, you just don't trust them. And it's not because you've had a personal experience with them. You've never experienced anything bad from them. But for some reason in your mind, you're just telling yourself, there's no way this person can be as good as everybody thinks they are. And I'm going to find out what's wrong with them. <laughs> they might have everybody else fooled, but they're not going to fool me. And then eventually you get to know them. And everything that people have been saying about them is true. And you begin to think back on all the foolish things that you used to think about them before you got to know them well. So here's my question today, family. What is it that you are thinking about God right now because you don't know him well? What, what is it that you've assumed about the intentions of his character because you haven't spent intimate quality time with him? By the time we get here in Matthew chapter 6, we are right in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. One of the foremost sermons ever preached, probably the most important and impactful sermons ever preached. So important that a, a scholar says that in the history of Christian thought, indeed, in the history of those observing Christianity, the Sermon on the Mount has been considered an epitome of the teaching of Jesus, and therefore, for many, the essence of Christianity itself. He goes on to say the Christian writings from the close of the New Testament until the Council of Nicene in 325 A.D. quote Matthew chapter 5 more than any other chapter in the Bible. Chapters 5 through 7, which is the total of the Sermon of the Mount, are the most quoted three chapters of any three chapters quoted in the Bible, which lets you know just how seriously and how important the early church took Jesus' teachings, specifically his Sermon on the Mount. But what I love about this passage is Jesus is not just merely teaching us how to pray. We find the equivalent of this passage over in Luke chapter 11, where the disciples are asking Jesus, Jesus, I, I, I know John has taught his disciples how to pray, and the Pharisees have taught their disciples how to pray. Can you teach us how to pray? And so here we see a model prayer of what Jesus is saying. When you pray, pray like this. But this passage is so much more than just about prayer. In it, Jesus is teaching us what God the Father is like. Now, if you remember, one of the purposes of Jesus' mission was to come and to reveal the Father, the Father to humanity. John chapter 1 verse 18 says that no one has seen God except the Son, the only begotten Son who has shown the Father to us or who has revealed the Father. Colossians chapter 1 15 says that he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that he is the exact imprint of his nature. One of the purposes of God was to come and to reveal to us who God the Father was and Jesus begins doing that in this prayer. It's not just a prayer of how to pray, but he's teaching us what to think about the one that we're praying to. Amen. 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 Yes. 
This brings me to my first and, and only point today, but stay with me because there are seven things that I want to teach you or I want to show you that Jesus is teaching us about who God is and what he is like. But my only point today is simply this. God is the greatest father we can ever have. God is the greatest father we can ever have. Look with me at verse 9. He begins by saying, therefore, you should pray like this. Now, he says, therefore, because he's pointing back to what he just said previously. And right before he starts with this model prayer, he's teaching them, don't pray like these hypocrites do. You know, some of y'all want to go out there in the middle of the marketplaces on the, on the corners and you want to pray these loud, elaborate prayers to draw attention to yourself. Not because you're really trying to commune and talk to God, but because you want other people to think that you're religious. You, you want everybody to, to see how much of a Christian you are. He says, don't be like these hypocrites. Don't be like them. He says, he says, instead, I want you to find a secret place where you can talk to God. He said, I want you to find somewhere that nobody knows about, where you can get on your face and be honest with the Father, where nobody knows what you're going to say, and it's just between you and God. How many of you have a secret place that's just between you and God, where you can be honest with him, where you can pour out your heart before him, where you don't have to worry about how people may look at you funny because of how you're talking to him? You might need to find you a secret place. But anyway, he says, don't be like these hypocrites. So when you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven. Now, it's interesting that God uses this term father, which uh, can be translated Abba. It is the similar word that we use as daddy. Now, that, that word daddy uh, indicates that there is intimacy there. There is relationship. There is comfort and warmth and trust there because you don't just call anybody daddy. And so, right off the bat, Jesus is letting us know that when we come to God, you're coming to him as somebody, as if somebody you, you have a, relation, a close, intimate relationship with. It's interesting that, that, that Jesus uses the word father 43 times, or refers to God as father 43 times in the book of Matthew. 38 of those times he uses a personal pronoun, meaning that 38 of the 43 times he says either our father, my father, or your father. He either says our father my father, or your father. Now, now, now that's, that's interesting because it lets us know that Jesus is referring to God in a way that doesn't make him the father of everybody in general, but exclusively to those who are followers of Jesus Christ. So God the Father is not everybody's father, but he's only the father of those who have trusted in Christ for salvation. You heard Pastor Nyron say it earlier, John chapter 1 verse 12 says, but to all who did receive him, the son, he gave the right to be children of God. You don't just have the right to be children of God. You are given the right to be a child of God through your trust in Jesus Christ. Exclusivity. But not only that, Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 11 himself, he says, no one knows the father except the son. And listen, anyone to whom the son desires to reveal him. It means you can't just know the father unless the son decides to reveal him to you. Again, exclusive. God is not the, God, the father of everyone. He's only the father of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. Over in John chapter 8, Jesus is arguing with the religious leaders and the Pharisees, and he's trying to get them to understand the truth of what he's saying about the fact that he said, man, listen, I came from God. I know who my father is, but, but you ugly. You your daddy's son. That, that's the modern translation. What he really said was you're from your father, the devil. 
but for contextual purposes, he said, you're ugly, you're your daddy's son, and he probably dabbed on him after he said that. But in that statement, Jesus is letting us know that there is exclusiveness, there's an exclusivity that exists in your relationship with the Father that nobody else has. Let me see if I can make it plain. I, um, I went to Target one day, this was a while back, and I mean, you know how we do, we, we go to Target instead of Walmart. Um, I don't know if it's because they, they got better lighting, or the aisles is clean, or they actually got cashiers at the checkout register. Uh, I don't, I don't know what it is, you know, and we always walk in there for one thing and come out with more than what we planned on getting when we went in there, but for some reason, we love Target, right, or Target, as some of y'all, some of y'all say, but anyway, I was walking in Target one day, and, and I was with a friend of mine, and we were just walking, going to pick something up, and there was a lady there, and she had her children with her, and her youngest child was uh, in uh, the cart, the push cart thing. And I walked by, and the child looked at me and lifted its arms and said, Daddy. Now, the first thing that I said in response was, not today, Satan. Because the last thing I need is from some kids out here in these streets to be calling me Daddy that neither me nor my wife know about. So anyway... He, he, he called me daddy, and I, of course he wasn't, so the mom apologized, and I, I kept it moving. But th there's important, if he was my child, I would have picked him up and embraced him. I would have assured him that, yes, it is me, daddy. But because I was not his daddy, I had to keep him at arm's distance. There's a reason why. It's because there are certain affections and benefits that come with relationship to me that are reserved for my children. Meaning that uh, 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 I don't love your kids the way I love my kids. Now, Pastor Kurt loved that, you know, I'm, I'm student ministries pastor, you know, high school and children's, but, but I'm gonna be, I don't love your kids the way I love my kids. I don't discipline your kids the way I discipline my kids. I'm not gonna spend money on your kids the way I spend money on my kids. I ain't as patient with your kids as I'm patient with my kids. And the reason is because there are benefits that my children get because they're my children. And those same benefits don't extend to everybody. See, that's what it means when God is our father. It means that there are benefits that come to being in a relationship with God as his child that are extended to you that aren't extended to everybody. God is our Father. The first thing I want you to know about God being our Father is that God is personal and He's present. God is personal and He's present. God being our Father also means that it is not just a personal relationship, but He is our Father. It is a communal relationship. God being our Father means that you and me are now in a family because we share the same father. That means there is the same set of expectations on each and every one of our lives once we become children of God. That means that we should act towards one another in a particular way because we're in the same family. That means our love for one another should be distinct in the world because we're in the same family. 
Our patience with one another should be distinct from the world because we're in the same family. We shouldn't sin against one another in particular ways because we're in the same family. There is something that changes the way you relate to other believers, other brothers and sisters, because now, as opposed to when you did not know Christ, now that you've been adopted by the Father, you are now in the same family. It's both personal, he's your father, but he's also our father. God is personal and present. Look with me at verse 9. It says, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Now, if you have this memorized in the old King James, it says, hallowed be thy name. But I'll stick with the CSB right now because that's what we're using. So honor your name as holy or your name will be honored as holy. This petition here is seen as having a strong ethical dimension. Your name be honored as holy. God is calling for us to respect him and his character and who he is. There's a reverence that comes in terms of our posture of how we relate to God. But not only that, he's also letting us know that there is an expectation of obedience. So not only do we reverence him in the posture of our hearts towards him, but it also translates into obedience to him because of the reverence that we have for him. See, that, that idea of your name being honored is the exact opposite of God's name being profaned. And if we look in the Old Testament, we see Israel often being described as having profaned the name of God. And why is that? Well, Israel, if you remember, throughout much of Scripture in the Old Testament, was bugging. They was a wild group of people. And so oftentimes, God would have to remind them through prophets and through judges to stop worshiping other gods and to stop engaging in sexual, sexually immoral behavior. And one of the clauses that you always see describing them is when they were engaged in this behavior, they were profaning the name of the Lord because of their wicked deeds. The, 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 their profane of God's name was tied directly to their wickedness. Now look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. It says, in the same way, Jesus is beginning the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about how our light should be us shining to the world, and we should be like a, a, a light set on top of a hill that all can see. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. There is a direct connection between honoring God's name as holy and your obedience. It doesn't mean that God's name is holy if you're obedient, because God will be holy with or without you. He doesn't need you to be obedient for him to remain holy. But what it's saying is a proper view of who God is will result in your obedience. It is both upward worship of God and horizontal transformed life. It is upward worship of God, horizontal transformed life. The two go together. It means the more that you worship and revere God, the more your life will be changed and transformed. It means that if your life is changed and transformed, it's a good indicator that you have worship of God. The two are not mutually exclusive, but go together. It means to hold God in highest reverence and to live a life that reflects the reverence you have for him. That brings me to my, the second 
thing that Jesus is teaching us about God is God is to be feared and expects your obedience. God is to be feared and expects your obedience. Then in verse 10, he says, your kingdom come. This is, this is that idea of the already but not yet. Meaning that, meaning that, that Jesus has already come and, and his kingdom has already begun. His, his kingdom reign and rule over humanity and the world has already started, but it will not be fulfilled until he returns again the second time. That means, that means three, three things. There are three elements to this. It means that God's present rule through Christ results in changed and transformed lives that have been submitted to his kingly rule and are obey, obeying his commands. It means the expansion of God's kingdom by the proclamation of the gospel throughout the world. And it also means that the consummation of God's kingly rule will result when Christ returns, defeats his enemies, and fully establishes his kingdom. That means that God has authority and rule and reign over your life right now. That means that you don't wait until Christ returns to try to live a life of obedience to him. That means every believer is underneath the umbrella and should submit their lives to the authority of what God says our lives should look like. But it also means that there will be a time to come in the future where God's reign will be full and complete and everything will conform to how things should go under his rule. See, the beauty of that is we've never lived in a world where the ruler was absolutely right and just in everything that they did. But there will be a day, a day when Christ returns. Well, the Bible says he will make all things new. He's going to overthrow all unjustly governments and systems of oppression. And he's going to rule with righteousness. And he's going to rule with justice. And he's going to rule with mercy. There will be no Philandos being murdered unarmed. There will be no more Freddie Grays. There will be no more Sandra Blands. There will be no more any of these brothers and sisters murdered. There will be no more racism. There will be no more systems of oppression that leave us uneducated and without jobs and without a ways to move up in the world. There will be none of that. Jesus will come back and his reign and his rule will be righteous and it will be good. And everybody will have equal footing before him. It is a petition that Jesus' disciples are to align themselves in God's kingdom movement, both right now and in the future. There's an old saying that says, you're, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. But, but this here also lets us know that don't be so consumed with this world that you're not living for the next one. And so here there is this reality where Jesus is communicating that the coming kingdom of God, God's kingdom coming, means that we are supposed to live out the reign and rule of God and the mission of God both right now and in ex expectation of what it will be like in the future. He doesn't end there. He says not only your kingdom come, but your will be done. But hold on, before we go to will, will, will be done, the third thing that, that Jesus is teaching us about God is God rules right now and forever. God rules right now and forever. Then he says, your will be done. A few weeks ago, we talked about the will of God, the necessary will of God and the free will of God. Necessary being what God must do so he does not violate his character. God must, be, God must uh, always exist because he is eternal. 
To not exist would violate the character of who he is. That's his necessary will. His free will means that anything that God wants to do but didn't have to do, i.e. your salvation. God didn't have to save you, but he chose to save you. Then there's God's secret will and his revealed will. His secret will being those things which God plans to do that he won't let us know about. And we just have to trust him. Then there's his revealed will where he reveals what he expects for us to do so that we can be obedient to his commands. And so here Jesus is telling us to pray in a way that shows that we desire God's will to be done. That there is an expectation that all that God wants to do in the world, we should want to see happen. Whether we know about it or not, whether it feels good to us or not, that we would be praying the will of God for our lives and the lives of others in the world and making sure and seeing uh, as far as it depends on us to make every effort to see the will of God come about. Even Jesus, his, one of his utmost acts of obedience was being about God's will when he was here present in his earthly ministry. That's why in John chapter 4 he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Even in his most grueling moment when he knew the will of God was not going to feel good in the garden of Gethsemane, he said, if this cup could pass, let it pass. But if not, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus had a healthy understanding of the will of God, even when it wasn't what we wanted, even when it was going to be uncomfortable, even when it was going to hurt. Jesus said, I'm concerned that what God wants to see happen happens, not what I want to see happen. The will of God lets us know. Jesus here is saying that God always does what's right and what's best for you. See, when, when the will of God happens, because we know the character of God, we know that God's will is always right. It's always the right decision. God doesn't make mistakes. Everything that God does is, is right, but it's not only right, but it's best for you. That's, that's crucial to understand. Not only can you trust that what God is doing is right, but also that what he's doing is, has your best interest in mind. That, that's, why, that's why the word says that, that all things work together for good. For those who are called according to your purpose. That's why it says that if God is for you, who can be against you? The reason we believe that is because we trust in the character of God that, that everything that he does is good. And it's not just good, but it's also the right thing for us. Jesus here is telling us that God always does what's right and what's best for you. That, that's the fourth thing that you can know about God. God always does what's right. And what's best for you. Now, it's interesting. These first three petitions focus on God. They are God-focused. Our Father in heaven, honored, ho honored as holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's God-focused. And these next three petitions are needs of the disciples-focused. So the first three are focused on God. The second three are focused on how we relate and how God relates to us through how he meets our needs. Verse 11 says... Give us this day our daily bread, referring to all of the believer's needs, both physical and spiritual. This phrase recalls Exodus chapter 16, 
you're not familiar with Exodus chapter 16, God has rescued the people of Israel, the Israelites from, from Egypt, and they're now in the desert wandering, and they start complaining about how they don't have anything to, meet, to eat. And they say to Moses, man, at least we had good food when we were slaves. I mean, who wants to be free if you can't eat good? That's literally what they said. They said, man, I, I mean, I know we were slaves and all. I know we had it rough, but at least we had meat and vegetables and fruit. And so they began to grumble against God. And so you know what God did? He gave them quail. He gave them so much quail that they got sick of meat. He gave them so much quail that they turned into vegans. And then God rains down manna from heaven. And he says to them, he says, he says, every day I want you to go out and I want you to gather up enough manna just for that day. And every day I want you to get up in the morning, I want you to go out and I want you to get enough manna for you and your family just on that day. The day before the Sabbath, I want you to get two days worth. I want you to get one for that day and the Sabbath because on the Sabbath you are to rest. But every day, I want you to get up and go grab this manna and get enough just for that day. Now, you know how we do. Some, some, some of them saw that it was more than enough out there. So they, they got enough for that day, but they had brought their buffet bag with them. And so even though they had their fill for that day, they wanted to take some extra home. And they would store it up in their homes, and then they would come back, and to their surprise, it would be filled with maggots that had eaten through it, and it had infested it, and it was unusable now. And the reason that that was the case was because God wanted them to depend on him daily. God wanted them to have faith that when they closed their eyes at night, and opened their eyes in the morning that what he told them would be there would be there. And so he, he said, I, I don't want you to get so comfortable that you stop trusting in me and trusting in yourself. I want you to depend on me for everything that you need each and every day. And so he told them just to take just enough. Now, you know, you know, you know, God knows, you know, God knows how we do. I think it's funny because God gives us little reminders. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, he, he, he told them something that he normally told them throughout that time. And, and, and it was this. He said, he said man, when y'all get up in that, that land flowing with milk and honey, I know what's going to happen. You're going to get up in there and start enjoying yourselves, and you're going to forget all about me. And that's exactly what happened. They got in the land, this fruitful land, and they began to experience all the blessings that God had waiting for them. But in the excess of what God had given them, they began to depend on themselves. And they forgot about the God who had provided for them. Maybe that's just me in here, but I know sometimes every once in a while, God blesses me real good. And then I start acting like I'm going to forget where that blessing came from. And then God reminds me real quick by taking it away. Just so he can show, I, I don't want you in a place where you're going to forget about me. But, but you know what? That's, that's called love. 
See, if God didn't love you, he would just let you enjoy not thinking about him no more. He would just let you enjoy not giving him thanks and worshiping him anymore. He wouldn't mind you not worrying about uh, the fact that he's provided everything that you need. But it's God's love and his faithfulness to you that takes things away from you so that you can remember where you got it from. God is teaching us to depend on him through how he provides. Not, not, not necessarily what or when he provides, but how he provides. Jesus here is teaching us the fifth thing about God. God will take care of you. God will take care of you. And then he goes on, verse 12, and he says, And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. That, 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 that phrase, forgive our debts, means to erase our sins from our moral account. It is, it is legal language to erase our sins from our moral account. It means that, that sin has created an obligation of debt to God that we can never repay. See, when, when you sin, you have now created a debt that has separated you from God so much so that your inability to repay it means somebody else has to come in and pay it for you. And the reason that you can't repay your debt is because you continue to sin. And all you do is accrue debt after debt after debt and, 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 and put yourself further and further in the hole, so much so that you need somebody else that has no debt. Not only that has no debt, but is in the black to come in and take care of your debt for you. See, see, that's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel means that we have been forgiven. It means that we've been pardoned. It means that, uh, it means that we have been released from the consequences deserved by our actions. Now, now, I don't want you to think in terms of a presidential pardon. You know, at the end of a president's term, he normally takes some time and pardons some criminals and just releases them free and clear. Now, the difference between your pardon and their pardon is they just get to go and the sentence is now nullified. The difference between your pardon is that in order to not violate the holiness of God's character, somebody has to finish doing the time that should be reserved for you. Because God can't just wipe out and nullify the consequences or otherwise he wouldn't be fully holy. So in order to maintain his holiness, somebody has to stand in your place and take your consequence. The beauty of that is we have, we have someone named Jesus who, who, who became your substitutionary atonement. It means he was your substitute. He stood in your place and took your punishment to atone for your sins. You're not just pardoned because God just happened to love you. You are pardoned because God loved his son and his son lived a perfect debt-free life and he paid for your sins. We are forgiven our debts as we forgive our debtors. That, that doesn't mean that, that God forgives you when you forgive others because it would make the, 
the character of God dependent on your moral actions. But what it does mean is that forgiveness of others is proof that you've been forgiven. It is a reflection of God's forgiveness and his grace to you that pushes you to forgive other people. Say, when you, when you begin to understand the depths and the nature of all that God did to forgive you, it makes you want to forgive somebody else because you want them to experience the grace that you've received. The sixth thing that Jesus here is teaching us about God is simply this, that God forgives. That God forgives. And then in verse 13, he says, And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that God tempts us? That, that can't be the, safe, the, the, the case because James in chapter 1, verse 13 says that, that God doesn't tempt us to sin. God can't tempt us to sin. So it's interesting that this word tempt could also be translated as testing. God testing us. There are some similarities that help us kind of understand what's being said here over in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1, where Jesus goes into the wilderness being led by the Spirit so that he can be tempted. He can be proved. And there are a number of things that parallel one another from that Matthew chapter 4 and, and this Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. And it speaks of God's leading someone into a situation in which they would be tempted. But also, both refer to the acts of being tempted themselves. So not, God, not just God's leading us into temptation but also or, or into testing, but also the temptation itself. But then both identify Satan as the personal agent responsible for the temptation. Because they were familiar with Jesus' temptation experience, his hearers would naturally interpret it as a request for God not to lead Jesus' disciples into a situation in which they were exposed to Satan's tempting work. It means that there are moments in our lives when God has to test us so that he can grow us in our character, in our dependence and trust in him. So the disciple is to pray that in those moments where God is trying to use circumstances and life and situations to grow our character and our dependence in him, the disciple should pray that he keeps us from, the, from Satan trying to use those opportunities to fall away or rebel from God. That in those moments of weakness where God is testing us, those are the moments where the enemy likes to work. Where he likes to sneak in when you're weak, when you're tired, when you're already wrestling through some things with God. And he likes to whisper little things to you. Like, did God really say that? And so here the, the disciples, we are to be praying that in those moments of testing, of God reproving us and, 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 and trying to grow us up, that the enemy doesn't get a foothold in our lives that would call us to disobey and rebel against our God. Jesus is teaching us here that God will protect you. That God will protect you. Now what's happening in this passage is that God as Father is teaching us a new normal in his family dynamics. It means that 
When you become a part of the family of God, when you've been adopted into the family of God, you can't bring your old family dynamics with you. You can't bring what you used to think about a father with you into your relationship with God being father. See, see, all of us have experienced a natural father in some way, shape, or form, either because they were present or even if they were absent. Even if your father was absent, you've created in your mind what your father, what a father is like based on how you've experienced your earthly father. And Jesus here is teaching us that we can't bring what we think about earthly fathers into our relationship with him as father. Because no matter what we've been through or experienced, he is unlike any other father that we've ever known. He said, if, if you had a good father, our father is greater. If you had a bad father, our father is better. If your father was absent, our father is present. If your father was abusive, our father was kind. If your father makes mistakes, our father is perfect. If our, your father has hurt you, our father is love. If your father has passed away, our father is alive. There is nothing that you can do to correlate the two because because no, no matter what you've been through in relationship with your earthly father, Jesus here is letting us know that you've never experienced a father like this in your life. So when we, when we sing songs like, he's a good, good father, it's because he's perfect in all of his ways. And we can trust the character of who he is. And he has left us his word so that we can know who our daddy is and what he's really like. Let us pray. Father, our father, thank you, God, that you are a good dad that you are a patient dad, that you are a loving dad, that, that, that you come through for us, that you always do what's best for us. So if, if we are fathers, if there are men in here today who are fathers, we can look at your character and we can model our lives after what you're like, after how you father us, that, that we might forgive, that we might take care of those who were responsible other, that we might always do what's right and what's best, that we might rule our homes in ways that honor you with healthy biblical authority, that we uh, might uh, set a culture of obedience uh, and fear, that we might be personal and present, that we might model ourselves after how you father us. And for those of us who have lost a father or never known a father, God, you let us know that you're there and you're present. And even, even though we may have missed out on a lot of things with an earthly father, you are there to fill all the gaps. You are there to fill every need that we've ever had, to supply every need that we've ever had spiritually and even physically to, to comfort us and to love us and to show us what a true father should be like. And so, Father, we're so grateful to you that your love has been lavished upon us in this way and that we can know truly what you're like as God, our Father. And so we thank you, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is true. And we thank you, God, that you love us so deeply and you care for us so greatly. And so, Father, we just pray that no matter where we are in this place, no matter what we've experienced with fathers, that you might meet us there that you might comfort us and heal every hurt, 
and mend every brokenness. That you might affirm every good thing about fathers for us because of who you are and how you relate to us. So, Father, again, we just say hallelujah. We say thank you. Thank you. Thank you because you are worthy to be praised both now and forevermore. All of God's people said amen. Amen.